TJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Some technical difficulties with the phone, so Steve Cleveland is going to join us thanks to Zoom, because Zoom is taking over the world. So it's going to sound a little different, but it's still going to sound like Steve. Steve, good morning. Yuck. Yuck. If Steve were joining us right now, he would be on the Sprint Special Zoom guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Please visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. And i got to let you know, Lloyd has just come in and is standing behind Yach, taking this all in and laughing. This is great. <laughs> Steve, good morning. Good morning, guys. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank goodness. We're all very happy now. We're excited. It's been a little frustrating at times. All right, we want to uh, start here where we started with you the uh, the last couple weeks. Uh, the last dance on Sunday night. It's it's two hours of new programming, so we're all watching it. I don't know if that would have happened if if things have been different, but they aren't. So we're all watching it all the time. And I think one of the takeaways here for a lot of people is. Jordan was really stressed and drained and exhausted as he chased the third title in 93. There have been Bulls fans that said, boy, if he hadn't gone to baseball, they'd have won eight in a row because they'd have won the two while he was gone. Look at how tired and fried he was. Do you think he really could have won eight in a row or would they have gotten beaten somewhere because he was just spent? You know, I mean, I, I think that's difficult to tell. You could certainly tell that he was spent and uh, that all of it had just gotten to him from the media, the press, and all that. Uh, personally, I, I think it may have had more to do with him winning three more later on, the fact that he could get a break, take, get away from it, and uh, refocus. Uh, but it, it's incredible as you watch this to see the intensity of the media. And, you know, you are the media. I've been part of the media. But at that level uh, where you have no life, and now he's at a point where he's coming under scrutiny for things that uh, people are finding out that aren't major issues. But, you know, when you put a guy up to where, you know, he is uh, in everybody's mind, he's just been perfect in everything he's done. And then all of a sudden he's got a few personal flaws and they just dig it out every time they see him. And it's just amazing the amount of people that surrounded Michael. And, and it didn't matter where he went. There's a reason he, you know, that golf was – his therapy and even though he was gambling or this or that you know i mean at the end of the day because he gambles uh you know a thousand dollars for him was like you and i playing a two dollar nassau <laughs> it's uh that's just what he did but that is where he found a lot of peace and solace was getting out there with his buddies and uh you could tell he was spent and i i never really noticed even thought about it to be honest with you uh but it's really apparent watching all the video yeah, that's one of the things I think is tricky for a coach because in the documentary, he's talking about being on the golf course. Put the gambling stuff aside. I don't really, that's not my point here. But he was saying that he appreciated Phil Jackson, who was a veteran coach, understanding the need to give the players off, let them get away so that they can come back rested. How tricky is that as a coach to know when you need to press on the gas as opposed to release the gas to let these guys breathe a little bit? 
Well, I think, first of all, they had a veteran team. So there was a great deal of trust between that coaching staff and those players. Um, and I, I think I, I know in teams, I'll, I'll give you an example. And, and Kelly Wesley and I, I remember several months ago, we were just chatting and talking about our first time to the NC2A tournament when we kind of turned the turned the tide and we and we had actually won the Mountain West Conference regular season title. And uh, we were playing in the in the you know, we won the Mountain West Conference tournament. Then we went and we played Cincinnati uh, down in San Diego. And, you know, I, it, was been my, it was my first experience. I, got, I had a good staff. We were young. And, and, and probably at that point in time, as I look back to my experiences, we did too much. And it was one of those things where our workouts, our practices, everything was intense. Everybody was excited to be there. And we felt like, you know, you don't want to take a moment off. You want to be prepared. You want to be watching film. You want to be getting shots up. We had competitive workouts down at the tournament. And looking back, I would say that it was a game where at halftime it was close. I think it might have been tied. And they ended up pulling away and winning. Uh, but we had a conversation about, you know, we probably overdid it. And, and, I, and I think that I look back on that and think, I think I think you know they're right. I mean, we we look back there. We we had we had a good shooting team, but we had really really mature players. But I think we didn't take the time to give them some freedom and enjoy the experience. And we did that at other times. And guys, I think played better. But I, I think there is something to be said about just taking that pressure off, dialing it back a little bit, enjoy the moment. Yeah, you've already played thirty some games. It's not like you're going to change your offense. Maybe you're going to tweak a inbounds play or uh, maybe a couple of quick hitters because you're playing a different team. But I think that a, a wise coach understands his team and says, hey, let's take a step back and let's gather ourselves. We'll continue to watch film or whatever the circumstances are. And I, I think we were all excited as a coaching staff, the players. We only knew one way to do it. You know, what we, we should have done probably, and as we did other times, gone and done something socially, got away, go see a movie, uh, you know, maybe go play miniature golf or whatever it might have been, but do something away from the game that got their mind off it. Because I, I love that team, that, that first team. They, they, they had great character. They were intelligent. They could shoot it. We just had a little bit of everything that was really good. Uh, and so uh, that was my personal experience with it. And it did help me in the other tournaments we played in. And we were, you know, we were really close in games. You couldn't quite get over the hump. But it did make a difference to get the guys more relaxed for that. Former BYU basketball coach Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joined us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Episodes 5 and 6 of The Last Dance chronicled the Olympics and Isaiah Thomas, who had an NCAA title and two NBA titles, being left off the team. There was no reason for that, except for politics. And I'm curious... And that Olympics team was just rife with it because there's the politics of Isaiah getting along or not getting along uh, with Jordan and Jordan hating him, plus Isaiah having run-ins with Magic and Bird over time. But there was also, hey, we're going to have a college guy on the team, and then should it have been Shaq who was better or Leitner had more team success? Well, Shaq hadn't played in other international tournaments. So there was a lot of drama and politics swarming around choosing that team. How much do you find that that's just the norm in the world of basketball? You know, there are going to be personality conflicts, and I think you've got to put that aside. Uh, it, it's to be honest with you, it's a shame Isaiah didn't play. I mean, his pedigree and all the things that he had done, 
Uh, I understand that you have that, and I think all of those guys would have been able and very capable of, you know, kind of extending all a branch and, hey, this is we're playing for our country. Uh, I, I don't see any reason it wouldn't have worked. There, there might have been some, it, it may have been difficult at first, but I'm sure that they could have all got through it. So that's unfortunate. And, and I think that, I don't, you know, we don't, I don't think we really know the story there. I mean, obviously there were feelings and there were conversations. Um, and I, you know, back then the Olympic committee, this was a brand new thing to bring the NBA guys in, kind of turn this thing around. But yeah, you're, you're going to have, and those, that's what coaches do. You, you have personalities on every single team you have. And, and there are guys that have, that don't get along and they're not best friends when they leave the, the you know, and I, I may have mentioned this before, but I remember my last junior college team with Ray for Austin, who played in the league for 14 years, and Ron Solis, who came and played for me at BYU. One was from Oakland, one was from New York. They, they, they weren't in love with each other. They competed. They, they were strong-willed. They weren't doing things socially together. But we made a point of making sure they were together at the right times and the right moments. That's when we were playing games. And, and there, there were some altercations. There was a competitiveness of practice. There were guys getting after it. And, and that happens in every program. And you control that as a coaching staff. And sometimes, you know, you, you want that. You want that competitiveness. You, you want them to battle every day. But you got to have it under control. And you don't want to get to the place where, you know, it, it involves hurting the team or it, things become physical in practice. But, I mean, anybody that's coached long enough has had situations and circumstances and practices where games get competitive, practice gets competitive, tempers flare, people say things that they may not normally say. I mean, that's, that's the nature of this business. I mean, it's competition. There's going to be talk. Those things take place. But the key thing is to make sure that it's under control and that the players understand what the big picture is here. So I think they could have worked through it. They had great coaches and a lot of veteran guys. Uh, it's unfortunate it didn't work out. But to lay that on on Michael, uh, I don't know that that's right either. What's a bigger form of motivation, the desire to succeed or the fear of failing? <laughs> oh, boy. That's uh, – we've experienced it all, you know. I mean, I think, I think the people that can put the fear behind them – fear is a healthy thing. I mean, it keeps you on your toes. It gets you in a place where you uh, don't take things for granted. There's, there's an attention to detail. I mean, I think as a coach, we operate like that. I mean, it's like, we, how much film can we watch? How much can we do? But to be honest with you, the more positive of those two traits is just that desire to be successful and to have that attitude about wanting to win. But so it, there is a combination. I mean, I think you have a little bit of both, but if one exceeds the other, where you, you're really confident and we're gonna win and but you don't do take the preparation, then you know, you end up not reaching your full potential. But the other end of it is if you're so frozen and fearful by all the little minutiae and all the things that are going on, you're never gonna be your full self. So you have to have a little bit of both. Uh, but but certainly that you're gonna err err on the side of confidence and uh, the desire to win and the desire to be the very best you can be. But when the pressure's really on, you're, you're not worried about losing. You're thinking about making the play that's going to win if you're going to win the game. I guess you could be thinking about losing and then lose the game. But does that fear of failure, in, you know, with 10 seconds left in a one-point game, does the fear of failure win it? 
I wouldn't think so. No, no, no. And I don't think anybody that I know, my, at least my experience, is those, those were never feelings I had in, you know, in my mind and, and any team I've ever had. If we were down one and we were shooting free throws, we believed we were going to make them both and win the game. I mean, sometimes that doesn't happen, but uh, I, don't, I don't think ever I can remember a team where there was a fear of failure that ended up hurting us in, in any situation or circumstance. But that it doesn't mean – I mean, you take a look at just pregame stuff. The day of a game as a coach and a player, I remember as a, it was way more different than like a coach and a player because you've got so many things going on. I mean, I, I, had, I was looking at so many different scenarios and making sure we were prepared before we went out there. I mean, I always had to, at some point in time, find myself in my room, dark room, go in, close my eyes for 30 to 45 minutes and just clear my head and fall asleep if I could and come there just absolutely refreshed and ready to play. Everybody has different things that they do to get ready. Coaches have things, players have things that they do. But for me, when I felt like the pressure was getting to me, uh, that's where I went. I just, I just, I would just take myself and just get in my room, maybe listen to some music, fall asleep for a little bit, wake up, rest, let's go. I mean, the plan is already in place, but you sit around and worry about things and, and that's not constructive. And so you end up getting back. And that's what worked for me. Everybody's got different things they do to get prepared. But I, I never, ever, really ever thought as a coach or a player about the fear of failure. I always felt like, hey, we, we got a chance. And you know what? There were a lot of games in my career uh, as a coach, especially in rebuilding programs, where we had opportunities to upset teams, where there wasn't a great deal of pressure on us. And the pressure comes when – everybody expects you to win. You know, it's easier when you're the underdog and there's no expectations. But when the expectations comes, then that fuel, that, that fear of failure plays more of a part in the lives of players and coaches. But again, you just have to have the things that you do to block that out of your mind and stay focused on the present, in the moment, and not being the best you can be. One of the things we're seeing with this Last Dance stuff is Phil Jackson being this sage. You know, they're interviewing him. I, I don't know if he's in Montana, and it's obvious he's older. He's got white hair. He's got white white beard. So he's not really receiving any form of either praise or criticism. He's like this sage guy. But when he was going through it, there was this argument, oh, he just has the best talent. And so that's why he won six with the Bulls and five with the Lakers. And anybody could have done it. And I think to myself, well, wait a second. The guys who preceded him didn't do it, but yet he took the same players and they won. And he won those 11 titles. So my thought for you is how important do you think he was in those 11 titles and obviously the six with the Bulls and what made him as good as he was? I think I think a lot. I mean, obviously the triangle offense and and all of the things that were happening on the floor and the talent, but we we all know that it is always going to be the intangibles that make a difference. That that the difference between being really really good and being great, oftentimes doesn't have anything to do with a jump shot. It doesn't have anything to do with athleticism. Don't get me wrong, talent talent you got to have talent to win championships, but talent is never enough to get to the highest level and sustain it for a long period of time. You have to have the intangibles and the culture, you know, it was a little weird and strange, you know, to see 
this existentialist who, you know, was into yoga and meditation and doing those kinds of things way beyond before his time. I mean, people weren't doing those kinds of things. And, and he had, he found, I mean, Phil was able to find his inner self and help other people find their inner self. And, and there's a lot of different ways that people do that today, you know, and the, there's so many different organizations and groups that come into corporate groups and teams. I do some of that myself with culture building. And there's a lot of things that Phil Jackson did that nobody else was doing. And I do not believe for a moment. I'm not saying those teams wouldn't have been successful, but they don't get to where they are without Phil Jackson. And, and list, a lot of people look at him as some quirky, weird kind of, you know, dude out there that's uh, all over the place. And, and he's taking these guys and doing things. He's some kind of a hippie looking guy. That, But at the end of the day, I, just watching the video and the film on this, those guys have bought into that. I mean, they they may not have bought into it at first. And, and I'm sure that initially they're going, is this guy crazy? But his... His, his ability to get guys to really clear their minds and to, to think through these things and find ways to meditate and put yourself in positions, all those yoga positions, all of those things have a way to just relax one and find yourself and be able to breathe. You know, breathing is a really important thing. You start thinking of a simple little thing like breathing wins and loses games. Guys are nervous, hyperventilating, can't, but if you can just have a calmness about you. And you think about the world we live in today, you know, I mean, it's all about being mindful and calm and being in the best place that you can be to be successful, whether it's in basketball, whether it's in teaching, whether it's in parenting. I think Phil was way ahead of the curve on this and had a lot to do with that success. I'm a big believer in coaching trees. It just strikes me as uh, just too bizarre and too mathematically unlikely that it's just an accident that these guys who win a bunch of titles worked with someone or worked for or with either way someone who went on to win a bunch of titles and you look at Steve Kerr and the fact he played for Popovich and Phil Jackson could the Warriors have won a title with anyone coaching them probably but could they have won as many as they won and you know the Durant thing eventually you know, didn't work, but it could have not worked earlier if Steve wasn't as good with personalities. So how much do the Warriors owe Kerr and the people he played for? How much do you buy into the coaching tree there? Well, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a com- really supportive of what you just said. And uh, I think that when you look at the great coaches today and, you know, I, I mean, when I coached, it was, it was a bit of an aberration for me to get a division one college basketball job. I mean, I was a high school coach. I mean, I played at Irvine. I come out of there, go, taking the LSAT to go to law school and I get a phone call and the guy asks, wants to know if I want to teach AP government and, and history at a brand new high school. And, and, I, and I said, I never really thought about that. I, I was I, I was political science major. My, my whole focus was, this, it was what I was going to do. And, and then I had an opportunity to maybe to go over to England and play professionally for a little bit. And, and I remember my wife saying, you know what, we just need to get, you know, you need to get a job and get to work. And, and anyway, I ended up taking this coaching job with never, ever having a thought in my mind about being a basketball coach. I loved the game. And, and I had some wonderful mentors, a man there that had been my high school coach and, uh, and shared things and learned things. And over time, uh, you know, I realized how important a coaching tree was. 
in terms of everything you do from organization to practice planning to game planning. And I, and I think I really found that out uh, as I became a junior college coach and I had mentors in my life. And, but I was kind of new to it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't in a program where I stayed there and had my head coach, Tim Tiff, be my mentor. And I, it, it wasn't like that. What ended up happening is that people that I hired and, uh, you know, I, I look at Dave and, and Juddy and Heath, guys that, that have gone on to be really successful coaches. We were all kind of doing it at the same time. I'll be honest with you that, you know, there were things I learned from everybody. And I mean, probably the, the greatest mentors for me were Boyd Grant and Ron Adams. I mean, they had the greatest influence in my life. Ron Adams was at Fresno State. Of course, he's been the defensive coordinator for the Golden State Warriors now for a number of years. Boyd Grant was one of the most successful college coaches in the West Coast. I went to all their camps. I went and listened to them. I went to their practices. Those were my mentors. And then as things evolved, I kind of developed as I became a community college coach and became a division one coach. I took from what they, you know, I learned from them about organization and motivation. And, and, and then I became who I became. And I learned from, from Heath and from Dave and Juddy. You know, just having Juddy on our staff, think about that. I mean, I was never part of the Rick Majerus tree, but he was a brilliant coach. And, and his game preparation things were uh, different than some of the things I had done. I gleaned from that. And so, and sometimes we have a coaching tree where you're just right there. And sometimes you glean from it through assistance and others. But there's not a coach that I, I've worked with. Andy Toulson, who came in and had a perspective of the NBA and in college basketball. And, you know, just you, you look at the people. I mean, I, I think about the, 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 the coaching staffs that I've had over the 35, 37 years. I've learned something from everybody. But I, I do believe that having a coaching tree is really important. And, uh, you know, I, I, lo I look at Mark Pope today and look at where he's come from as a player and who he's worked for and been in situations and circumstances. And he, he is a combination of a little bit of everybody that he's worked for or played for. And that's, I think that's what's happened. And uh, that's why we see, we don't see junior college coaches getting division one jobs anymore. They're, 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 you're seeing the best candidates come either as assistants or head coaches from other programs, but they've been in a tree. They understand how division one basketball works. And as an athletic director and as a president of a school, you want to hire people that come from good coaching trees. And so yeah, I am grateful I had a chance to be at that level. And, uh, but I, I fully agree with you, both of you, that a coaching tree is everything and, and, and certainly what the Golden State Warriors experience had a lot to do with their coaches as well, even though they had great players. So then do you feel a connection to BYU with the coaching tree angle because you hired Dave Rose, Dave Rose hired Mark Pope, and then obviously Mark Pope uh, succeeds Dave Rose, who you brought to the university from the junior college ranks? You know what? I, I, you know, the other day, this is a, it was a probably eight or nine months ago, I was in Provo, and I, I had sent Mark a, a text telling him I was going to be in town, and uh, I, was, I was up there for a, for a wedding, and... Uh, I said, do you mind if I come by and just, you know, see the guys? I, you know, I don't, just not going to show up. And he said, no, no, no. And he sent me the sweetest text. He said, listen, the, this is, uh, this is, you, you started this, you know, in, in, in terms of that coaching tree. I never thought about that. And certainly 
uh, he and Dave have probably forgot more than I know. But but at the end of the day, uh, I felt a connection. That was a really sweet thing for Mark to say and to do and say, hey, I'm part of, I'm part of your tree. And uh, so in, hopefully in some little way that I've helped uh, to make that a better place. But at the end of the day, those things are really, really important. And uh, I think everybody needs to have, and I, I think we evolve. You have a system, you have a culture, you do certain things and you learn over time and you ch things are always changing, but there are some core values to this business that uh, are really pure and you got to stay with and, and making sure that the intangibles are taken care of is really going to allow you to perform at the highest level. And then and when the moment is there, those coaches, those teams are the ones that win championships and, and, or they, or they just overachieve and do things that, maybe nobody ever thought they could do, despite the fact that maybe they didn't have the talent that another, another team had. Steve, as always, we appreciate a few minutes and we appreciate your flexibility. Thanks for uh, the workaround solution to the phone issues and uh, coming on a Zoom. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we're just Zooming audio because I wasn't ready for a video. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, guys. All right, see you, Steve. Steve Cleveland. I don't know that I've ever seen Steve with a with a hair out of place. He's you got like a cowlick going on. He's got morning bed hair here. What's it, what could possibly be going wrong? Yeah, I don't know. All right, DJ and PK. It's ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The Zone. Everything you've missed in this show. Isaiah Stockton. BYU is an independent. Steve Cleveland on the coaching tree. We'll get to all of it coming up next. Don Shula passing away at the age of 90 this morning. We'll get to all of that next. DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. In my house, Tony, where a 12-year-old point guard loves to watch, you know, his video, his iPad, which I think is what you're on right now, it's always Dad. Allen Iverson was so great. Dad, Kyrie Irving's so great. These must have been the greatest small guards ever, right? And wrong answer, Matthew. Isaiah Thomas is the, even greater than John Stockton. He won twice, Isaiah did. I'm sorry, it's Isaiah. DJ and PK, it is time to get up to speed on everything you missed in today's show. Brought to you by Larry H. Miller, Chrysler, Jeep, Dodge, Raymond, Sandy. Find your deals online at LHMDeals.com. That's Michael Wilbon. And somehow that's a slam at John Stockton. He's the greatest ever. Greater even than John Stockton. That doesn't really feel like a slam, does it? But that's how Jazz fans have taken it. Yeah, I think it feels – I mean, the Jazz fans are used to discussing Magic or John. Now, all of a sudden, you're bringing Isaiah into the picture. That's like Jordan saying they were comparing Clyde Drexler to me. I mean, come on. I mean, Clyde, Clyde Drexler was a great player, but you're going to compare him to Jordan? Jordan took offense at that. And so, yeah, you're used to arguing, trying to argue Magic. Now, all of a sudden, you got to argue Isaiah? That's too many leaks in the dam. <laughs> 
So we talked about this this morning because uh, the last dance, episodes five and six, they get into uh, Isaiah not being on the Olympic team. And there were only two guys on the phone call, and Rod Thorne and Michael Jordan basically gave him the same version of that. Hey, you want to be on the team? Who's on the team? Oh, the guy you're talking about is not on the team. They didn't even have to mention him by name. Now that's a feud. Yeah, it's a feud by byproduct of both going after the same thing and the style that the Pistons had used. You have to say that the Pistons were correct in using that style. Even if you didn't like the style, it won them two titles. How many teams have won two titles? How many players have won two titles? Well, they go into that. They go into that when Jordan in the in Last Dance in episodes five and six. They're talking about how only three franchises have gone back to back. Now, how many times it's been done when the Celtics are winning, you know, eight in a row, uh, and the Lakers had won back to back, back to back, and three in a row in their history. But the fact is, only the Lakers and Celtics pulled it off before Isaiah and the Pistons did it. They were the third franchise, and then the. The Bulls were the fourth. So it was very rare. Yeah, something to be said for that. So as much as I didn't like it, I respected that they did what they needed to do. Lambeer was a dirty player in my mind. But he felt and they felt that, that it was necessary to play that way. And people were allowing them to get away with it, man. You could punch someone and not even necessarily get ejected. Now you're suspended for X amount of games. Forget about ejection in the moment. You're suspended. So, I mean, there's no excuse now for punching someone because you know the ramifications. But back then, it's like the steroid thing. I don't put McGuire and those guys as the evildoers of the game. They were basically allowed to do it, so they did it. Now, the repeated lying about it gets on my nerves. You know, McGuire has been back in the game now for a number of years because essentially he, he offered a, a mea culpa there. And you've had others who uh, who have said, yeah, I did it. You know, I shouldn't have done it. And they're allowed back in. The ones who have been repeatedly lying about it, uh, you know, the Pete Rose thing, you lied for what, 15, 20 years? Come on, Pete. Why? why the lying in a lot of ways is worse than the actual uh, misdeed of the original one, right? Yeah, don't you tell that's the story people tell their kids. Don't compound it. So they did what was basically allowable at the time. And they won two titles from it. You cannot argue. Would you, uh, let's ask this to Jazz fans, would you take a dirtier rep for the statues if they had at least one title? Let me handle this. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> Would that bother oh, what you? Vern Lundquist? Yes, sir. I like that. That, was, that was good. That was good. That was a good one. Good pull, DJ. I like that one. But would, would that bother them? Because it bothers them now because Rex Chapman comes out, you know, and, I, and Malone had, to a degree, a dirty uh, reputation. You know, you can't argue with some of the stuff that he did. Stockton, I think it was more gamesmanship by the little dude doing stuff that couldn't be seen by a ref. So be it. Uh, you know, it wasn't none of none of the stuff that Stockton ever did. I viewed as flagrant. Malone maybe crossed the line a time or two. But would Jazz fans take the Pistons rep if it meant titles? Of course. And would it bother them? Eh, maybe a little. 
<laughs> but probably not. To what degree? Not a lot. Just a little. Because that's a good question to ask for you. Well, isn't it? Isn't it how much that Malone bothers him right now? I mean, I don't think Jazz fans are happy that Carl knocked out David Robinson. That he was literally lying unconscious on the floor. People yeah, didn't cheer that. They weren't happy about it. Okay, they might. They might be happy that he dropped Isaiah because nobody liked Isaiah. I loved Isaiah. <laughs> he did not. You just said you. <laughs> I said I didn't necessarily didn't appreciate like the, the way boys. they played, right? But I appreciated that they. It was won. how they were. It was how they were going to win titles. And if they didn't play like that, they wouldn't have won two titles. Even even the fact that they played a uh, you know shorthanded Laker team to get the first one, they they had to play like that to get the titles. They could have easily been beaten in the second round if they didn't play like that. They didn't have an overwhelming abundance of talent, you know. That's. Uh, other things we've talked about this morning, we talked about Don Shula. He passed away at the age of 90, a phenomenally successful NFL coach. A record 347 wins if you count the playoff games, 328 if you don't. Six Super Bowls, five with the Dolphins. So good for so long. One in the 60s, three in the 70s, two in the 80s. Uh, the only way you get to 347 wins, you start early. When he was hired as the Colts head coach, he was 33 years old the youngest NFL coach at the time. And he got him to the Super Bowl before he went to Miami and started his run there. So an awesome career. Went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1997. Belichick, Hallis, Shula. There's the list of coaches with 300 wins. I'm not a big longevity guy because I think that you could be great without the longevity, although I have to acknowledge longevity. I just, if you have it, great, but I don't think you necessarily need it to be considered great. I think that's true, uh, but as an NFL head coach for 33 years, only two of his 26 Miami teams had losing records. He won two-thirds of the games he coached. Yeah, this is no knock on Don Shula. He deserves everything that came his way for sure. But I just don't want to eliminate others who, for whatever reason, didn't necessarily have the longevity. And I guess the classic example in the baseball sense is Koufax. And people of that generation say he was just unbelievable. He didn't have the longevity. I don't think it detracts from his greatness. Now, if you have the longevity, uh, uh, Don Shula, it adds to your legacy for sure. So I'm not discounting longevity. I'm just saying I don't necessarily think you need it to be great, but if you have it, it certainly adds to it. So you would go in uh, football then, you'd go Vince Lombardi. Didn't have outrageous longevity, but since he won five NFL titles and the first two Super Bowls. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, no question. I mean, as a player, Barry Sanders, uh, guys that's a step away a little earlier than Maybe their body indicating they still had stuff left in the tank, so to speak. Uh, yeah, but Lombardi, yeah, to me, he's got to be right there with anybody. Well, I mean, he's he's a legendary name. The trophy's named after him, right? Yep. I mean, he is just, uh, you, you think of him, and maybe it's because I don't remember him actually coaching, but I think that he's combining uh, all aspects of toughness, with uh, the ability to relate to players, get them to play their best, all those things. You know, coaching isn't just about how much do you know X's and O's football. Obviously, you need to know that, but also how you manage people and get them to perform the best that they possibly can be. You take a look like a Jerry Sloan. He had both. He had greatness and he had longevity. 
But if he chose to retire earlier, I don't think that it would detract anything from his legacy. Some of his best work, though, clearly was after the statues retired. To me, that's where he really just came into, I don't want to say came into his own, but really stood out. when he What he did after the statues left was just absolutely awesome. And that just punctuated, without a doubt, his greatness as a coach. Uh, we also talked BYU football this morning. What will they do if there's a conference-only schedule? I think the odds of a conference-only schedule are low. Certainly a possibility. I think they're low, and it could be a conference-only schedule if they have to shorten it in the fall and they're trying to get to the playoffs. It could be a conference-only schedule if the season gets delayed till the spring and they're up against the NFL draft. But I think they're going to do anything they can to play 12 games and make a lot of money off this. But with all the leagues having an even number of teams now, if Notre Dame's playing anyone from the Power Five in a shortened season, you don't want buys. You want to get in as many games as you can, 8, 9, 10. I think there's going to be somebody for BYU to play. So I don't think it would be the end of the world if they had to go home and home with Liberty and Mexico State for a year. But I don't think it's going to come to that. I don't think it's going to come to that either. But, you know, I don't even know that what's going to be interesting is that uh, if not everybody in the same conference is fielding a football team, how will that plan out? You know what they should do? Yeah, you that's, want to, that's a wild card. You, you want a television event? Say, everybody, okay, you got to let us know by July 1st whether you plan to play. Some teams, some say, nah, it's, you know, California, they got all their issues and all that stuff. So, anyway, you get all these teams say, hey, we're in. Then you put all these teams in a hat, and then you go, all right, now, we're going to do Alabama's schedule. And you just pluck, like, eight, nine teams out of a hat. How awesome would that be? Could you imagine the <laughs> Alabama and Texas yeah. State. Yeah, yeah I don't want to break this to you, PK, but they already do this in soccer. It's called a draw. And every time they do it, it's a huge huge TV show. Social media goes berserk. Doesn't matter if it's a World Cup or a European Championship. What you're saying right now would 100% you're spot on. It would be a massive deal. Yeah, we need to recoup some of this money. That's a great way to do it, man. (laughs) Well, you know, and I I think that uh, if you can get everything set up at the start of the season, but I think there's also the concern that in the middle of the season, will a team stop playing because they have an outbreak in whatever area? Or a team has, you know, multiple guys test positive or something, you know? I mean, as it sits here right now, it'd be easy to look at Rutgers and Boston College because those areas have been heavily impacted. But, you know, when you start talking months down the line, who knows what area might or might not be impacted. So that would be another thing to look at with the scheduling going forward. And, and if, if a couple teams have to stop playing one weekend with the two teams they're supposed to play, just suddenly to say, hey, we need a game, let's do it, and they put it on ESPN2 or whatever because they're trying to plug a hole in TV schedules. Who knows how crazy the scheduling could be for this year? Yeah, I really hope that the fear of something drastic – won't prevent for what's going on now when now gets to be where now now is not literally now but when now is the season that oh we can't play because something really bad might happen in november and here we are in august so i hope they don't do that 
if it comes to it to where you can't, like there was a bunch of conference tournaments that, oh, yeah, we're going to play. Well, then everything happened so quickly, and then they made the decision to stop. Now, I'd rather live with that as opposed to, well, there might be something, so we can't do this three months from now. Uh, let's wait till we get there, or at least have better idea as we approach whatever date that is. So I would rather see them go and then stop than not go at all. And I think that is the more likely one. I think that's what we're seeing with the NFL. They're going to announce the schedule later this week, and there are people like, why are you doing it? There's a good chance it's not going to happen like that. Right, but if there's a 10% chance it could happen as scheduled, the NFL is going to have that schedule in place. Although i got to believe... <laughs> they got they got multiple plans right behind it because they know full well it may not happen the way it's scheduled, but they're still going to put the best case scenario out there and then have you know fallback plan B, plan C, whatever it takes uh, as they adapt going through this. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5, 1280 The Zone. Your feedback's coming up next. And a Don't go nowhere. Now let's get this party started. This is Hans Olsen and Scotty G on the Zone Sports Network. Will you have foregone money for free food? No, because I was getting free food. Jeez, man, I was... Oh, dude, the mic's on. Thanks, <laughs> man. I'm 20 years removed. Everybody was getting free food of some sort. Oh, man. So there were some places where you guys knew you could go and get a free meal. Yeah. Were you careful not to abuse it, or were you just wrecking no. those places? Yes. <laughs> I know there's a couple places in Logan. I like how you're trying to put this back on me. <laughs> I'm sure the voice would get some free grub, too. Uh, I've not gotten any free grub, so. You recognize this? Sam freaking Merrill. <laughs> Sam, I am. Oh, that's a steak? What the hell just happened? <laughs> what the hell just happened? Hanson Scotting. Weekdays from 10 to 2 on 97.5, 1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's time for your feedback. Brought to you by Audi Salt Lake City, where you can pick up a new Audi Q5 SUV for only $3.59 per month. Visit Audi Salt Lake City at 999 South State or AudiSaltLakeCity.com. So we were asking about uh, Isaiah being on the Dream Team ahead of Stockton. Does that not Stockton off the team? And Coach JS says, Isaiah should have knocked him off the team. That's an easy take. That ignores Christian Leitner, I suppose, but... Hey, if you're going to stick with the politics of the time and have a college kid on, then what happens? Uh, yeah, but why not uh, Magic? He wasn't even an active player at the time. Yeah, I know, but he was Magic. There was politics all around that team. You can't separate out the politics and suddenly say, this needs to be about basketball. Magic was not an active player at that point. Larry Bird was running on fumes. The back had really just uh, brought his brilliant career to an end. Uh, so he was you know, laying on the floor when he wasn't in games. He couldn't even sit on the bench. So, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff going on. You had a college player mandated to be on the team because there used to be college players. And they got over that four years later in the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. So why was Leitner there? And if it was a college player, should it have been Leitner or should it have been Shaq? I mean, you can go on and on with the politics that surrounded that team. Yes, you can. Because as you pointed out, it wasn't all about the basketball because they were going to win the basketball. That wasn't going to be close. So that left room for plenty of politics. Yeah, Dana says that. How about a head of Leitner? That college rule was dumb. It was dumb. It's like somehow they needed this transition of one college player it, it, one time. It served time. no purpose. I know, right? 
Jason points out by 92, Thomas had won two NBA titles, was a finals MVP, and had been to every All-Star game since 82. So, yeah, in 92, he was a few, he- a few steps ahead of Stockton, except in likability. I don't know that he was a few steps ahead, uh, but certainly you can argue that he was at worst even. Maybe only a step ahead. Uh, did you see the tweet that came out or over the weekend? I guess maybe it was off uh, Cougar Board, somebody adding up all the Mountain West schools that had players drafted since 2011 when BYU went independent. No, what? We got that tweeted at us. What uh, is it? Boise State leads the way. They've had 25 players drafted, followed by San Diego State with 19 and Utah State with 13. And you got to go through Boise State, San Diego State, Utah State, Fresno State, Wyoming, CSU, Hawaii, San Jose State before you get to BYU with six. Well, what's the time frame? Since independence. Since 2011. Number of players in the last 10 NFL drafts. So in the independent era, BYU's had six players drafted. San Jose, Hawaii, and CSU have had eight. Six players in a, coming up on a 10-year period, is that what we're saying? Right, yeah. Well, that, that's not nearly good enough, no. I mean, it's clear. That, and, and you look at Utah, uh, how many they've had in that same time is uh, really astronomical compared to BYU, especially since you take that. Just well, I wonder what the prior 10-year period would be. Well, that'll give me something to do today. Because if you go back and you can maybe you can figure that out and put that on Facebook and we can discuss that, what is the primary reason or is it not a singular reason? We have to go with multiple reasons. Why in the last, since 2011 is when it started, why has BYU had so few guys? And then you compare it, say, the prior 10 years and the 10 years before that. What is going well, on here? I think there's probably at least four reasons. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't want to worthy of discussion. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to ruin all of tomorrow's show, but I'll give you a peek ahead. One, Bronco, uh, like the gritty underachiever, uh, you know the the four star prima donna type that that kind of bugged him. Well, that's where most of the NFL draft picks are four four star guys. They're higher thought of. You know the the gritty two star guy can make it once in a while, but not very many. Obviously, BYU uh, leaving the Mountain West, going independent was a factor. Obviously, Utah going to the Pac-12 was a factor. Obviously, the entire Pac-12 coming in to recruit the state was a factor. So I think you're, you're on the mark when you say there were multiple reasons. There were a lot of things going on. But we can get to all of that tomorrow. DJ and PK, we're out of time. Scotty and Hands are coming up next.